What is she doing? Looks like she got distracted. Yeah, I don't know. She's getting a wine, I think. <sighs> what else could she be doing right now? Classic Trisha. <laughs> it's Miller time. It's Trisha time. Hi, welcome to Outrageous, a podcast where we talk about race, media, culture, politics, and everything in between. My name is Chris. I'm in New York City, and I'm joined by my very best friends, Trisha in LA. Hello. And Jason in DC. Hey. Good morning, everyone. Morning. I love when we record in the morning. I'm like so awake and ready to go. Like, this is great. This is great. And Trisha, thank you for joining us at whatever time it is on the West Coast. (laughs) You are an early riser. It is actually a humane time, so, um, but I am act- I am an early riser. Are we all morning people? I've no. become it, which I'm really upset about. <laughs> Jason was just I, straight I'm now. the opposite. I used to be a morning person, and now I am not. I mean, I wake up early to get my kids to school. But when I don't have to take my kids to school, I can sleep late. Mm-mm. I can't anymore. Mm-mm. I can't sleep beyond 7 o'clock anymore. I think Mm-mm. that it started happening after a certain age. I won't say what, what age it was. And I feel really bad about it. I did something you, really you feel exciting. bad about it? Like if... I do. I do because I want to lay in bed. I want to luxuriate in bed. No. Yeah. no. Not me. Not. I do. Not me. I. <laughs> when I'm awake, I have to get the hell up. I just can't. My poor kids on Saturday and Sunday mornings they go long periods of time of wakefulness without eating. Poor thing. Wow. Really great What's though. the name? I'm just going to get a pen. What's the name <laughs> of Child Protective <laughs> Services down there in D.C.? What? Who would I call? I mean, not about this, about something else I just heard. Yeah, right. <laughs> so can I tell you a cool thing I did this week? Or I don't yeah. know if it was cool, but it was weird. I did a sleep study this week. Oh, you did. What did you find out? I get my results in seven days precisely seven days please don't ask me what your results are right now it's just a bunch of tests right now okay you can tell me that i heard that 20 times but wait are they rude about it like that too (laughs) no it wasn't rude but clearly it comes up like clearly people after having done this is like what do you know and the guy's like listen you're not going to know anything and then he's like it's precisely going to be available in seven days but what takes so long how come we can test for like you know 30 (laughs) viruses with a single drop of blood partly joking but what but we can't do that which is what seven, that documentary was about right. but, but look you can get like strep results in the same day what takes so long like we, we really got to figure this sleep thing out we this is tough no but you know what it is it's because actually it's more than a sleep study can i just say y'all what a freaking mess that is the whole process for a sleep study is just bizarre you're having trouble sleeping so let me pick you into a strange room yeah. hook you up with wires in a foreign bed <laughs> <laughs> monitor you while you're having trouble sleeping yeah. it was really interesting but the results would be like it seems that you couldn't sleep well <laughs> that's a problem well, you that's know, a big funny. problem thank you, you for coming like into our laboratory there are no clocks in the room so they immediately upon rising they ask you all these questions that about your perception of sleep and he's like so how restful do you think how restful do you feel and and things like did you think do you think you slept and i was like mm, i don't think so he's like as a matter of fact and he asked me, how long did it take me to get to sleep? And I was like, I don't know, maybe 40 minutes. He's like, you were down in 15. <laughs> but it's like, he, you know, for them, it's like technical sleep, like real, you know what I mean? What the computer program said I was doing as opposed to how I felt, um, which is super interesting. So they hooked up things on my head and on my leg as well, because they're also testing if you have restless leg. They're also testing your heart. So that's actually why he was like, you know what? 
please get the entire study results from your doctor and read it. It's really fascinating. I bet. I I love data. I think this would be phenomenal information to have. And it's a window on yourself that you don't always have because you're busy sleeping. Exactly. So um, it was super, it was just really funny. um, Is this, did you do, I mean, if you're comfortable sharing, did you do it because you have trouble falling asleep or because you have trouble staying asleep? Like, why'd you do it? No, what really happened was I had a procedure in the summer, but where I had to be put under. And unfortunately, in the mask, the mask started filling up with fluid. And so they had to intubate me. And so the doctor's like, we need to figure out what's going on. The anesthesiologist was really worried. So he's like, okay, we're going to have to figure out if you have some sort of upper GI issue, which is why the mask filled up with fluid, or if there's a sleep apnea issue. And so I don't have an upper GI issue. Well, that test was fun. And, uh, and <laughs> this should be our first topic. It, I think we're into topics. Sorry. <laughs> no, this is great. This is, it's really fascinating. I mean, can I tell you when you have health insurance and they know you have health insurance, suddenly. It's oh, like, honey, the gold tram comes out. They're like, the lady comes with the tray of candy and cigarettes. You know, what would you like? You know, dirty tests. They have all the, they have like the rainbow cookies that are really expensive, Fiora Rocher, they're ready to go. And you know, and you know, UCLA is a teaching hospital. So Mm -hmm. it's an opportunity for them to teach students about all manner of things. Anyway, that was probably a little too much information, but yeah, that's what it was. There's a lot of medical information that you gave everyone. (laughs) Well, you know, it was, it was interesting for me. Hopefully it will be helpful. If you could have seen Chris's face, it was so sympathetic. He looked like he was going to (laughs) vomit as she was talking. Well, she's like, oh yeah, it was filling up. My fluids were pouring out of me. That was just a lot for me. So no, no, no fluids. It was fluids in like in the math. That's all. (laughs) Oh, okay. That was that all. Can I tell you, everyone, everyone has been dealing with, with it like, oh, oh, that's concerning. And so then I went to the upper GI specialist and he literally said to me, wait a minute, what happened? You could have died. Okay. Why do doctors, why would a doctor ever share that? I was like, I thank you for saying that. What are you you supposed to do with that information? I mean, gladly he said it after. I, uh, I was at a doctor's office recently and they said, you know, how, how's your, like, you know, how's your sleeping? And they're like, do you sleep uninterrupted? And I was like, oh, God, no. My daughter was in at 10. My son was in at midnight. They're like, oh, no, no, no. Like, do you wake up, like, on your own? And, have tr- and I'm like, oh, my God, no. Like, did you hear what I just told you? Like, the second I get those kids back in bed, I am unconscious until the next one comes. <laughs> That's my perception of my sleep, too. So I'm, I'm curious to see what they'll tell me. Because I feel like when I hit the bed, the bed, I just sort of fall out at, like, at 10 o'clock. And then I wake up at 6. So I'm not hmm. sure what they're talking about. <laughs> So that was scintillating. Well done. Where did we start and where did we end and why? That's the topic we're going to discuss now. All right, let's jump into topics. So last year, 2018 in Dallas, 27-year-old Botham Jean was enjoying some TV and eat some ice cream on his couch in his apartment when Officer Amber Geiger uh, entered his apartment. She was a police officer and shot him dead. So this was in the news because Amber, oopsie, she thought it was her apartment. And when she saw the door ajar, she was like, oh no, someone's broke into my apartment. She saw a black man in her apartment and she took care of business. Amber Geiger was recently sentenced to 10 years in prison for murder. Originally the charge was manslaughter. It got bumped up to murder because she straight up shot someone to death. In any case, This is getting a lot of attention right now because 
the younger brother of the victim in the courtroom after giving his impact statement gave a long hug to Amber Geiger and forgave her for, I presume, murdering his brother. On top of that, the judge, a black woman, gave Amber Geiger a long hug and also gave her a copy of her Bible. Her I don't know Bible. if you knew that. She gave her the Bible saying, oh, she's got plenty at home. I have so many ideas and thoughts about this, but just a little bit more context. The mother of Baltham Jean uh, was interviewed outside the courtroom and she called out the police corruption and how the case was handled. She didn't have any words of forgiveness or absolve anyone from murdering her child. And now that seems like people are divided, like, oh, well, the forgiveness, that's great. And then other people are saying, well, actually, that's sort of insane. I wanted to present that to you too. There's a lot to grab on here, so I'm just going to throw it out. What do you think about this entire story? I don't feel comfortable judging the brother for his actions or sentiment. I don't know anything about what it's like to have a sibling murder. It's just so awful. So I, I, I really am not. I know a lot of people are judging him. I'm not comfortable judging him. First of all, I just I have to start by saying, what happened to like put your hands up where I can see them and tell me what you're doing in my apartment. Now, of course, he wasn't in her apartment. But like the fact that she would shoot first, and it also said she didn't administer first aid after she shot him, which she's supposed to do. It, this is such a horrifying story. I also think for the judge to hand the Bible to this woman that was just convicted of murder and then hug her is wildly inappropriate. She got 10 years in prison, by the way, with opportunity for parole at five years. In five years, yeah. So... That's frustrating. And, you know, I'm not a super pro incarceration person, but it just seems like, I mean, my God, if this had been, you know, opposite races. And by the way, we saw that, I think, in the Twin Cities, something like that. It's, it's, uh, to me, it's infuriating how this particular murderer has been treated compared to others, particularly people of color. Um, as I said to you two in a text, though, I, the, the two things I'm, I feel, okay about or better than the other things about one is that we do have here a white police officer being convicted of murder for killing an unarmed black man we rarely see that so i'm glad that that happened but again judge wildly inappropriate sentence seems lenient and i just can't believe that this officer behaved that way it's just awful i'm reacting to so many different things about this case not the specificity of the case because I mean, that's neither here nor there in so many ways. For me, it's all of the things that are happening afterwards. I'm having a religious awakening or an awakening about religion that I'm sort of uncomfortable with. First, again, I don't I think I've actually Jason, I've found that most people haven't been judging the 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 son. I think that they've okay. been they've been really trying not to, actually. I think okay. the assumption is that they are judging him because they know what his Actions will be done and used for, which is to offer cover to Amber. Um, but I think when you dig a little bit deeper, most people say, listen, that's between he and his God and what he needs to do. Because I think they all understand that that's something that the, the forgiveness was for him. That's something he needed to do yes, for himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, because he has, to, I mean, somebody also revealed like he's 18. So when his brother was murdered, he was like 16 or so. So he he's young. This is a young person having to deal with grief. And this is what his parents have taught him. And he's been a very good son and a very good Christian. The part of it that's really uncomfortable for me is the very good Christian part, right? I feel like Christianity has told black people specifically 
that this is our lot in life. Like our lot is to be punished by life and that our pain and our suffering should be taken for granted and that there will be something better on the other side. And the long shot of that is that you end up having a life of suffering by the state that in some sense Christianity fully supports and in some ways celebrates. And so that makes me super uncomfortable. I've had a couple of very strongly religious people who are really reacting to what the brother did. I mean, they can't, they, they can't not like it, right? Because this is the height of Christianity. This is it. This is like a sacrificial lamb moment. This is like God's sacrifice, like for God so loved the world that he gave his only forgotten son kind of thing. That's what this family has done, right? And we're supposed to sort of see this as a kind of Jesus figure, but that's not really what's happening. What's really happening is like what happened with Jesus. The Romans murdered him and he, he had reactions to it. And I feel like we should be having reactions to the murder of a child. Well, but the other thing not a child. Has, he was, it was a man, but still. A man, but mm-hmm. a, yeah, you know, the, this person's child. Mm-hmm. But then the other part of it that's making me really uncomfortable too is I feel like Black people have internalized that Amber matters more than the victim. And that Amber is the victim. This makes me really uncomfortable. You know, because between the bailiff stroking Amber's hair at some point and the judge... And then now, recently, a couple of footage came out from the jurors. They were fully, fully seeing Amber as the victim. The whole thing is just sort of sickening. Like, someone has died. <laughs> like, where is the righteous outrage there? And where's the righteous outrage placed on Amber for being given outs by the police? Because if if not for the persistence of the family and many other supporters, who, by the way, are probably people who would have marched in the streets, this person would not have come to court. She would, have not, she would not have been brought to justice. So I just, the whole thing is like really sickening. And to watch it play out, I just feel terribly uncomfortable in many ways and mostly around the Christian thing. And then also really sort of being exposed to kind of internalized anti-blackness. There is no way in hell that I would ever see a judge step down and embrace a black defendant. I just would. I don't. Who, who was just convicted of murder? I would not see it. Yeah, I just couldn't no, see it. You can't imagine. This, it. So, yeah. So there's a part of me that really believes that that judge, in some ways, would have believed that the black person deserved it, and she can't quite get over the fact that this is well, happening. This now. is. You mentioned anti-blackness, and the thing that. Like you, there's so many reactions I've had. But what's furious to me is that between the bailiff and the jurors and the brother and the judge, the anti-blackness in there is pretty much the question on the table is like, well, what was what was she supposed to do? As if you walk into your apartment, you see a black man there enjoying ice cream. It's just so unfortunate what happened next. As yeah, if you just have to shoot him to death. He's yeah, such, like a black oh, man is such a threat by simply all, being there. Yeah, we've all been there. We've seen a black man. What is it? We were suddenly impassioned, and then he had to die. I mean, what were you supposed to do? This is really hard on you to be put in that position. The central anti-blackness to that is what is enraging me. That is why. That's why I can't get this out of my mind. If there's, if this had been a case. 
and I, I should have done some research before this to find this case, because I'm sure it exists. If mm -hmm. there was a case where there was some black boy and a white girl and the white girl died for any reason, I, I will, listener, find it. I'll bet you so much money that the judge, the juror, everyone wasn't like, oh no, with an outpouring of grief for that black boy. I'm pretty certain that that's not it. So this is definitely about race. It's definitely about gender. It's definitely about police corruption. Like they weren't gonna, this was gonna be manslaughter. I mean, can we just talk about that for a second? Like it wasn't gonna be murder. Like it was manslaughter as if, oops, like I was in the middle of doing something and someone died, which is, you know, lawyers get at me, but basically that's what manslaughter is. Like in, through events that were, had nothing to do with the directly caught, wanting to harm someone, someone has died. This is not at all what happened. She entered someone else's apartment, like Jason said, gave no warning, made no announcement of who she was, and just, just opened fire. And what was she supposed to do? He was black. And before I stop, like I referenced before, there was all this news coverage about how the jury could use the sudden passion defense yeah. or idea that they can lessen her sentence because if your crime is done, if you are inflicted with sudden passion, then you know, like, oh, she was flushed and excited and killed someone. So we should be more lenient about that. Who gets, who gets to enjoy those considerations? They they did in just in a slight bit of defense. They did reject that. They did yeah, I mean, reject the fact it. that it was even offered. Why would that be offered? Because it's not her Thank counsel. You. That's, the thing. That's, that's the thing. That's the thing. That's the stand your ground defense in many ways. So in some that, sense, that's what you would have raised for. Botham if he had been able to live. The fact that that was even on the table, the fact that that was discussion like, oh, well, the jury might go this way as if to give hope to some, to the reader or listener that, oh, oh, so maybe she won't be that punished. Like it just plays the narrative that like, oh, well, this is a terrible mistake on her part, which it is. It is a terrible mistake, you know? And I, I want to be clear about this. I'm not saying that she needs to be strung up and killed. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying eye for an eye. I'm just saying the facts of this matter is that, especially as a police officer, she did not do her due diligence. She is entrusted with a weapon that she carries on her and yeah. she should perform better than this. It was a horrible mistake for which there should be horrible consequences because that young man is dead and she's busy boohooing and crying and some part of me deep down does feel bad that she's in this situation but at the end of the day she killed someone because she didn't do her due diligence and she should have because she is a police officer part of it for me is i get the mistake right the mistake is you've moved in, you came into the, this man's apartment botham's apartment and you shot him and that is a horrific mistake however for me is to evaluate her and judge her is her action is about all about her actions afterwards you realize you've made a mistake. What's your responsibility in that moment? Is it mm -hmm. to offer aid, which she did not, or is it to call your buddy, your your fellow cop, and then have a conversation on text, and then proceed to then engage with other members of the force to make sure that you clean up the mess that you've just made? You made a mess. You're supposed to be responsible for it. I mean, that's that's the part of it that really in some sense, triggers me is like how she reacts afterwards, because that is part of her training, right? She entirely abandons her training in that right. moment. Like, oh, wait a minute, I made a mistake here. 
So for a while, it almost seemed as if it was quite devious that she even entered the apartment in the first place. Because you enter the apartment, you make a mistake. You're a cop. They're going to give you so much leeway. So at mm-hmm. this point in time, just try to make the a best of a bad situation. Try. I mean, someone said she didn't offer him aid. She didn't lean down as this person was dying and offer aid. Because imagine how shocked he was. Some stranger came. You know what I mean? So I just, that part of it for me makes it so difficult for me to take her the, the, the actual forgiveness that has been granted to her because she didn't ask for it. She didn't even ask for it. Right. She didn't even prostrate herself and ask for forgiveness. It was granted to her without any sort of action. I think that's what I find. I'm not mad at Amber Geiger. Like, she killed someone. That happened. Everything surrounding this story has been triggering for me. Everything surrounding it is just, it's rooted in anti-Blackness. It's rooted in protecting the innocence and purity of whiteness and white people and, and white women i mean uh, white i listen, mean white women particularly white here, blonde women even i mean even the judge i mean even the two women in the, the two black women in the court it was so funny once i saw the image of the bailiff stroking her hair i just had this image of black girl a black little girl playing with a doll and being enamored of that hair mm-hmm. and being enamored of what the hair represented and I just, there were so many things psychologically just so challenging about this case to watch unfold that if you had written a show, it couldn't have been better scripted because you're just watching. And even the resolution that the, that, uh, that the brother gave, that is exactly how a movie with a, with, a, <laughs> with a white protagonist would end. You know what I mean? Like, so uh, I saw this... Um... There's a black pastor that I know, and she posted this on Facebook, and she said she's been really thinking about this, but at what point is forgiveness, black people forgiving white people, at what point is that a trauma response? Is that something that black people, black communities have to do? Otherwise, the weight of um, anti-blackness would just crush the very life out of us if we held on to these anger and negative feelings. What do you think? I mean, initially, I was extremely angry at Christianity because I feel like this is this it bears it bears the brunt of it this is what you an effective christian has been taught right so christianity teaches you and so but then at the same time i realize how helpful christianity has been to our survival and how um how it spurred the civil rights movement i mean it it is it is a grounding and a centering force but at the same time this is also what it makes possible is the constant constant forgiveness of wrongs it just sets us. I mean, we don't we we don't come at Christianity. Or at least some people don't come at the Christian tradition from a sort of righteous anger space, where certain things aren't justified. We tend to fall back on this part, the forgiveness part. And so I've just I've been really 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 struggling with that. What do you think about it, Jason? Well, so I'm gonna again reference a book I referenced in our last conversation, which is this: How to Be an Anti-Racist and it talks quite a bit. I mean, the the author talks about how his parents started out in, I don't know, what we might call more kind of mainstream Christianity and then ended up getting drawn to black liberation theology within Christianity. And to me, that's a really meaningful difference. And we know, right, we've talked about there's Christianity and there's Christianity and there's Christianity. Yeah. And people practice it very, very differently. I think there's some great liberation theology in the way some people practice Christianity, yeah, I, I'm I'm really hesitant about the forgiveness thing just because I think it's such a. Per, I mean, I'm sure there's some th- something systemic at play, 
but I think it is such a kind of personal thing too. But what troubles me, I, I'll I'll just be upfront. Like I've been to you know I've been to my share of black church services as well as other church services, and I would say what I've experienced sometimes in in churches that I would say are not really uh, subscribing to black liberation theology is the sermon so often being basically hold on. Yeah. Like grin and bear it. Like your life's really hard, but just hold on because like God has something in store for you. And I just find that at best, not all that helpful (laughs) at worst, um, you know, kind of uh, suppressing what could be meaningful action and, and, you know, you mentioned the civil rights movement. I mean, that's not what the message of the civil rights movement was. It was like yep. you pray with your feet, like you yep. get up mm-hmm. in the name of God and you mm-hmm. demand justice the way that Jesus did and Moses did. And mm-hmm. and, um, and so all I, those guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All those Jewish guys. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I um, that's that's how I feel about it. Well, the, you know what's also noteworthy about this, too? And I think thanks for reminding me, Jason, about sort of liberation theology. I know I know that there is a strain of that, but that's not often, I think, what you encounter on a Sunday. I encounter it more in the sort of like theological readings. Reverend Barber, I think, would probably come out of a theolo- uh, uh, that space where he's basically marching and doing the work and doing the labor and asking people to actually have their grace reflected in, in, in having just policies. For me, I think the question about sort of this personal, the personal nature of the forgiveness, I think part of the challenge, and someone said this out loud, someone said this on Twitter, and I think it's true, is I don't think I would have a problem with this if this had been done without the cameras. I think forgiveness is personal. And I think the family has the right to offer it. But what's really what's really bothering me is now others are using his forgiveness as a weapon against Black people who choose to march or against Black people who choose to push back on the system and say, why can't you have this response? I feel like this is going to get back to one of our favorite concepts here, which is respectability politics, right? Yeah, like, if you disagree with something, why don't you act like that black person and not these other black people? And I think this is why people are uncomfortable with what was done. Not because they, they, I think most people understand why the younger, why the younger brother did it and, 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 and feel like a tremendous amount of respect and kind of admiration. But at the same time, we understand this is going to play out in the media environment where his response is going to be the response because that's what the news led with the news didn't lead with the mother she mm-hmm. showed tremendous grace in her speech i mean that's the other part of it is i also hate the fact that we can't be angry like everyone is so entirely impressed by the family because they're so self-contained right and it's like that's another thing is like the policing of black grief like it has to be done right like you know and that's the respectability part playing out too like the fact right. that that family is so above board like even in even in dealing with grief and death, we have to be excellent. Like, why can't we be basic and be I, like, if that happened to my sibling, to my sister, I would be raged, Phil. And I would feel like that should be okay and justified. Yeah. You know what I mean? mm-hmm. So it's just, this case is touching on so many things, so many intersections here. Um, because the other question is how, because of, in some ways, I think the family, listen, I think the family saved lives, right? Because I think, if there was a sense of rage from the family, I think it might have given permission for people to protest. Yeah. And I think there would have been a response to protest as we see what happens. And so the for me, it's like, how do they get 
the thing that the, the mother is asking for. Because I feel like the only way we get that is protest. It's not it, through grace and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. In wrapping this up, I want to talk about protest very quickly. I want to talk about, you know, there were some protesters and stuff. And I, I'm, I'm not certain what the goals are. Because I'm thinking for myself, do I want her to get a longer sentence? It's not about that for me, really. No, 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 no. The conversation around this has been centered on her and her grief. And that's really what's frustrating. And I don't know how to protest that. Oh, no, they're not protesting that because there's several cops. You can't, you can't protest her. that. Like, you no, know, no, you no. There, there, there's some actions that you can ask the police force to enact. Like, first and foremost, the things that happened after he was killed and all of the actions that were taken by the police. That's what people are protesting. You can't, I mean, her case is actually done. Yeah, like, it's in over. In many ways, it's over. It's over. And it's, I guess it's yeah. protesting or, or wanting the police department to train their people not to just shoot black people in their homes eating ice cream. Um, and more transparency after an event because that's also the big part of it is after this event and all the work that goes into protecting the cop I think people have been pushing for more transparency in that process Mm -hmm, for sure because I mean she tried to clean up her text I mean she was given all the steps to try to make sure that she was prepared for when for the scrutiny yeah for when when scrutiny arrived and so I think it's it's part that's what people are protesting is be more transparent in that process. It's so sad to me that most people don't welcome that because what you want is a transparent police force because you could fall afoul of the cops at any time. And what you mm-hmm. want to be sure of is that you are going to get as much as equal, um, you're going to be seen in as equal of eyes as they will be. You don't want a sort of supremacist police force, even for white people. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've also fallen afoul of it as poor whites. So, <laughs> oh. oh boy, always trying to appeal to white people by using poor whites. But you know, well, someone I mean, someone had said this once is that thing we have going for us. someone said once that um, white people are always pretending, or is it Americans? We're always pretending like we're temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Yep, Americans. That someone said that. Like Americans are temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And I think for white people in particular, you can't use what poor whites to put them in the same bucket because they do they think they're a world apart from those people. Well, and those do. people suffer at the hands of the system. But what are you supposed to do? Like the the middle class white people are like, oh no, they're not us. That's that is absolutely <laughs> not us. So that I don't know. That the trying to equate them never seems to work. Okay. Let's move on to the second topic. Jason recently watched the Dave Chappelle comedy special that was on Netflix. And a couple of weeks ago on the internet, people were very upset because that's what the internet is for now. Uh, (laughs) Apparently some people thought that his comedy special was very offensive, especially to trans people. Uh, A lot of people wrote think pieces because that's also what the internet is for about um, whether Dave Chappelle should be canceled is he still uh, relevant? Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about Dave Chappelle and then take the lens out a little wider, a little later. But Jason, tell us about the comedy special. What was your reaction? You texted me that you enjoyed it. So I want to hear more about your new transphobic ideas. <laughs> <laughs> what horrific that like a very open, a very open That's why I'm the one who frames the questions. I... <laughs> that was good. Yeah, so I watched this as Sticks and Stones, I think, is the name of his most recent, which I just watched. And 
I mean, to me, it's interesting in thinking about there are comedians who complain. Dave Chappelle is definitely one of them, but he's not the only one that is becoming increasingly impossible to like make jokes. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember a few years ago watching a, um, an interview with Bill Maher was interviewing Mark Marin and said, you know, I feel like you can't do comedy with liberals anymore because liberals is like, there's always something. And at that time, Mark Maron said, yeah, you know, I did a concert and someone said, I don't think you were addressing the needs of the transgender community. And I, I was like, I don't really think about my comedy as needing to address every community's needs. And, and Dave Chappelle is, kind of makes a similar complaint throughout. I, I'll say a few things, which none of these are intended to justify or negate any of the others. But one is I found a lot of it really funny. I have always found him to be one of the m most clever and funny uh, comedians. And I also would say about him that in many ways, not all, and I'll get to that in a moment, but in many ways he, I find I have kind of a, a sensitivity about lots of issues that a lot of comedians don't, that is refreshing and that he often can still be funny even while being more sensitive than others about things like sexuality and, and lots of other things. All that said, he has a few jokes in there that are really just awful. Uh, one in particular I keep thinking about in terms – I, I think it's extremely offensive both to people who are transgender or transsexual and to people who are Asian. And he even acknowledges that and his wife you know, is Asian-American. I, I don't know. I mean I, I certainly – it bothers me a great deal that he told some of the jokes he did. And I, it, anytime people are offended, it, it bothers me. And I think if people feel like a joke was really mean-spirited and, and again – well, I don't know if it was mean-spirited, but he said something that clearly would be offensive to lots of people and hurtful to lots of people, and that really bothers me. But I do honestly wonder whether it is just becoming increasingly difficult. And I'm not saying this with any judgment. This is a bad or a good thing. But increasingly difficult to have comedy because so much of our comedy historically has been you know, making fun of one group or another. We touched upon this a little bit in our last episode. And I, I just, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if actually, yeah, it's going to be very difficult to continue to make comedy because historically our comedy is making fun of lots of groups of people. To the, to the point about becoming, I think this is a really challenging question, right? Because I think if you, if you spotlight different moments in comedic history, you could still, you could hear this narrative. Um, so I think there was, um, I was looking at an interview with Carlin, George Carlin, okay. and he was talking about Andrew Dice Clay. And he, I mean, think about the height of Andrew Dice Clay. That's like 20 years ago. And More. he was saying that he didn't enjoy Andrew Dice's comedy because he thought it was meant it was punching down. And he was saying that that's a, there's a real distinction between the type of comedy that he finds engaging and interesting. And he was saying that actually what he thought was going on was that Andrew Dice was really producing comedy for a certain section of society, which yeah. you would in some sense call like the alt-right now, right? Yeah. And so what I would say is that there's always been a question about who is being punished in a comedic sketch, right? There's always been this question of which group is, is being attacked in a comedy set. Um, and so I don't know if it's becoming more or less intolerant because this question is, is an enduring one. So that suggests to me that this is like something that's endemic to comedy, kind of annoyed by a sort of like the modern preoccupation with it, suggesting that it's like ahistorical in some ways. Because that was 20 years ago and he was asking that question. And then I just read a piece about comedy and they were referring to Lenny Bruce. 
right? And so I think there's always been this question of what are the lines for comedy? What's appropriate? What's inappropriate? And I don't necessarily know if it's always been about groups being insulted, but I think that's that's just an enduring question in comedy and in sat- well, I, I don't want to introduce satire. I think let's just stick with comedy. It, the, what you bring up, and I didn't see that interview. That's very interesting. I'm kind of curious about it now. Mm-hmm. But this the, this question of, I mean, it, it seems like there's almost there's this concept of punching up versus punching down, and if you're punching up, then that's more palatable than punching yeah. down, which that, that kind of makes sense to me. And I could see that in the context of, of Dave Chappelle. I mean, that, that's interesting, whether it's more, you know, frankly, less offensive to have someone making fun of a group that tends to hold more power than that person. And then I think that's explicitly what George Carlin said. He said, it's bit, comedy has always been about attacking the powerful. That in some ways, it's your way to hold the powerful accountable. That's one means of what comedy can serve, right? That's one way it serves its purpose, right? It's for you to to sort of challenge the public's perception of the guy who decides whether you're going to go to war or not, right? And and so, but what I think what's interesting now is that you have very, very powerful people who fail to acknowledge their position as powerful people and then cast themselves as victims and then push back on communities and ways of challenging, which is like comedy, right? So like you may have a president who gets so offended that then uses the full weight of his position and power to come at you. That's traditionally not what you want, right? right. That would be weird. That would be such a weird presence. Oh, wait. Never yeah. Mind. <laughs> I forgot I mean, about the hellscape that I'm currently living through. Right? Because traditionally, you the assumption is you're so powerful. Why would you turn the weight of your power on someone who's calling you out, right? Why would- what What is... What is comedy in the sense that both of you have this, both of you, but there's a discussion happening right now mm-hmm. uh, between us about comedy should do this. Carlin, George Carlin has ideas about what comedy should do, but what is comedy? Like Andrew Dice Clay in the 80s, was that comedy? Like he told, if you're not familiar with who Andrew Dice Clay is, I don't know if that would be on YouTube anymore because I don't know if it matches their standards, some of his jokes. But yeah. like basically it was just nonstop attack on attacks on women, yeah. just about how they should serve him and they should um he can force sex on them and he should they, they should thank him and give him sandwiches afterwards. That's the thrust of all of his jokes. Now, I mean, in hindsight, was that comedy? Because it sounds like we are working with a definition that maybe isn't clearly defined. I'm I'm no expert here, but when I think of comedy and when I evaluate comedy, to me, it's like comedy. Is, I mean, I think we're specifically talking about stand-up comedy here, where stand-up is, you know, a person gets on the stage and tries to make other people laugh. No, but not necessarily. Don't don't narrow the focus just yet, because we could be talking about bit sketch comedy, anything, because you're telling a story, right? Yeah. Either way, you're telling a story. So what what can you tell stories? about what what makes something comedic and what makes it something else see for me i think comedy i've always received comedy as like a sort of exaggerated observation of the ordinary that that sort of reveals the absurdity in it and then it makes you chuckle right so for me that's always been comedies like you take some you take a scenario that mo- that maybe not everyone but someone engages in you blow it up you talk it through and then you re- you have people recognize 
sometimes the silliness of the moment, sometimes the humor in it, you know, and then that makes you chuckle, right? That's an observation. Now, there's also been moments where there's a mean-spirited element, right? You are making fun of someone that maybe the whole group despises. And so easy enough to get a chuckle. But and I and I think they're gradations of comedy, right? They're great. I always find like it's like it's like there's bathroom humor comedy. Like okay, everybody likes to make fun of body, you know, body parts and that kind of stuff. And then you then and then you think on a higher level, it's like okay, well, how about if I'm arranging ideas and I show you something clever and you start laughing? That's a little bit above bathroom humor, you know. And so I, I that's my tendency to think of comedy in that way. I think of them as having as having levels, to be honest. And and you can you can get at it at wherever you're entering, like a kid might get at bathroom humor and then continue to get at it as they age to sixty. I don't know, <laughs> but a kid is not going to recognize a sort of sophisticated pairing of ideas and see the humor there, which is something like sometimes I think Dave Chappelle used to do, like put you know disparate ideas together and suddenly you see the humor in it. And you're like, oh my god, we're silly people, we're silly human beings. Usually, you leave a comedic set feeling like we're such silly people. And you yeah. laugh at yourself, you laugh at others, and you move. And actually, it usually, to my mind, increases your sense of community with each other. Like, I feel yeah. like good comedy does that. Good comedy sort of reveals, like, our ridiculousness as human beings, makes you laugh at it. And then you, when you leave, you feel closer to each other. I tend to sort of enjoy that kind of comedic performance. But, yeah. That's no, that's well, that's well said. I'll just make two observations. I don't think they necessarily advanced the conversation at all. But one, I can remember a Cat Williams special. It's not my favorite comic, but anyway, he had this bit about like white people, you need more black friends. And then he would talk about all of the like misunderstandings and ignorances on the part of white people. And then he'd say, black people, you need some white friends. And he would talk about his experiences with his white friends. It was a very good bit. I feel like it did exactly what you just said, Trisha. The other thing I want to say, which I've reflected a lot on uh, about, the person who I have found both very funny and never offensive is Bill Cosby. And it is just so devastating that in his personal life, he was being so awful and destructive and, you know, just hurting so many women. And meanwhile, his comedy was like the most, I, and not, not everyone thinks it's funny. I, I thought it was, I mean, when I was a kid, I would listen to his records, and I mean records, vinyl, over and over and over. And again, it was like, there wasn't profanity, he wasn't making fun of any groups, and it was still hilarious. And I think it did exactly, you know, I mean, that's why people love Bill Cosby, right, Trisha? Like, it did exactly what you were just saying, like, people all of a sudden, like, oh, we're not so different, we all have our kids, and our kids all, like, all act like idiots, and we all have to discipline our kids, and, like, it was all this kind of universal stuff, and I'm using that, you know, conscientiously. Um, I don't know. It's too bad that he did all those awful things. Yeah, it's really bad uh, that you can no longer enjoy his comedy. I just never would have gone on record lauding Bill Cosby. Like, not anymore. It's just not the time. But. Well, I, I think it's important, but you know what? I think it's important that Jason gave context to why people really enjoyed him for so long. Because in many also ways... why he was able to be so successful and cross over. Right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. there was he, he was able then, to master something. It's something what you said about the community. There's a universe. There was a universality about Bill Cosby's comedy, but in later years, 
his comedy didn't make sense anymore because we had changed as a public and our needs had changed, which is interesting to me because when we talk about who we can make fun of and what you can say and what you can't say and you know being canceled if you say x y and z i do think that the definitions have shifted about what comedy is and who can be the butt of jokes and who can't be the butt of jokes and i'm, I'm not assigning any value vectors to this whether it's better or worse it's just that i hear comedians saying like oh there's we can't tell jokes anymore which is of course ludicrous um, but I, I just, I wonder what arena comedy makes sense in anymore. Well, do you also think, I think part of what's happened with this is that these comedians are now actually power. They are powerful people. Well, we've learned that. Thank you, sure. John Stewart. But good comedians have a lot of power now and they're explaining a lot of the world to people and so I think that people are interpreting their words differently. That's true. That's a really good point. No, I mean, and, a, I think, and a lot of them, frankly, are really wealthy. Yeah, I mean, I Most think that's what I some mean. Of them like, it's different when you're a comedian coming up. And so when you make a joke about the powerful, that makes sense, right? Maybe that in that environment, that makes sense. But if you notice, many of the conversations we're having are about very wealthy, powerful people who now want to continue to tell comedy what is like how can you do that are you good because now the powerful are your friends they're your buddy you live amongst them you they have been in some sense for you humanized because you are an extension of them and so your joke telling function really shifts i think maybe in one of our earlier podcasts we talked about this with ellen chris i think you made that point as well that her the the sphere of her comedy had shifted um, and so, and, and, and that was of her own making as well. Right. But it's a little bit like, I mean, it's a little bit like watching Oprah become Oprah. Like we, we grew up with Oprah and then she got to a place where she was suddenly in our minds, somewhat out of touch. She was having too much of a different experience for us to connect with it anymore. <laughs> and I wonder for these comedians, if that's not what's happening, you know, we used to talk about the fact that you have to sort of stay on the edge or be on the margins to be really responsive mm-hmm. and how can these comedians who live in wherever they live really still occupy that space um this is an interesting question because i actually watched um chelsea handler has a new documentary and it's her sort of recognizing that she has privilege and how that's impacting her comedy it's really fascinating yeah, i mean because You know, because for her, she's having a bit of a reckoning and what she's doing is she's engaging the audience in that conversation and dialogue with it. And so she herself has admitted that she wouldn't feel comfortable saying some of the things she used to say in the past. And I bet you her comedy buddies and her comedy friends are probably going to push back on that and tell her that she's just succumbing to PC culture. But for her, she feels changed. And so she now sees some of the things she said as cruel. Because she just didn't, she had a lack of insight then, according to her. Mm. So it was, you know, and I think most recently, um, maybe a couple of weeks ago, Eddie Murphy apologized for some of his comedy. Oof. And a lot of people push back on that. And so it's really weird. It's really weird, this notion. And I think this might be really the fundamental struggle that's at heart here is that how do you give comedians room to grow up? And do they give themselves permission to grow up? 
because the ones who are trying to articulate that they're growing up, there's a lot of pushback. I, I wonder how it's going to change going forward. In what way? I'm not certain, but I, I've been reflecting on just how different things are now than they were in the 80s or 90s. And I think it is what we were saying is that comedians actually have power now. They're no longer in the basement of some club in front of a brick wall, like John Oliver's on HBO, d- describing and defining and explaining politics to people. Like that's really different. That people aren't just commenting on politics anymore. They're enhancing and creating is a bit much, but they're enhancing and facilitating a political conversation. And I think that just gives them new responsibilities. Now, where does it go from here? I don't know. I, I want comedy to obviously exist. And I want people to feel comfortable. But I think the layers and layers of rules around what you can say, who you can say it about, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not certain who that's, I don't, I'm not certain if that is serving everyone. I'm not certain that the purpose of comedy um, can be protected in that environment. And I'm not saying that people are too oversensitive. I feel like I'm talking about both sides of my mouth. I'm not saying that people are too oversensitive. I'm just curious how this will change because I feel like we do not have a working definition of what comedy is. And I think in this age, everybody wants to be spoken to and to be spoken about. And I don't know. I just I well, wonder where it's going to end up. Well, maybe it's, um, maybe it's niche. You know, maybe what we have to recognize is that um, maybe comedy does, is not as broad as people think it is. And that you're really speaking to a niche audience at different times. And you have to recognize that. And maybe what's happened is that we've, um, we've lauded and elevated some comedy comedians as speaking to everyone. And maybe that's been a tragedy for some, you know, because even the even the Carlin critique of um, Clay was like he was saying that Clay was speaking to a very specific audience. And for those people, that kind of humor worked. Um, And maybe that's part of it. Maybe part of it is that like we are just we need to think about comedy as very segmented like this really this kind of comedian works here. This one works here. This one, But there's no general one that's like sweeping and covers and crosses all boundaries. But but the. I mean, I think what you said makes sense. The challenge with that in this day and age, of course, is that, you know, things that are recorded are ubiquitous, right? So on YouTube, anybody can see any comedian on Netflix. Like, you know, you talk about Lenny Bruce, like back then, Lenny Bruce was doing stand-up in clubs, usually unrecorded. That's like unheard of now, right? Like you can assume if you're getting up and doing stand-up, someone's recording you now. It may be. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. So. hope so. Well, but well so, actually, and that's that, actually something people have tried to institute now is that, that their live shows don't record. Like it's meant for you, you know what I mean? It's meant for you in this moment. And maybe good luck pushing it. back on uh, the moment. Well, but you know, Chappelle does that. You can't, you can't bring in phones to his show. All right. Well, let's leave that there, and let's move on to media recommendations, which is something you've seen, heard, read, or experienced that you think other people should see, hear, read, or experience. Trisha. I had a wonderful weekend and I which was made more fabulous by watching this absolutely wonderful eight part miniseries on Netflix called Unbelievable. It's based on a ProPublica story that has was written about several years ago. And actually the organization that I'd been working with um, gave it an award. And so it is basically a teenager reports being raped. 
and then is forced to recant her story. And then two female detectives begin to investigate a case and you start to realize that the case might be related to the teenager. What's amazing about it is that um, it's eight hours. The first hour is stunning, actually. It's really stunning and it's wholly different that first hour than the remaining hours because it feels very slow. But what's noteworthy about the first hour is they, the, the, the aim of that first hour is to really take you inside of what happens to a rape victim immediately upon her reporting a rape. And so you sort of follow her through that process. And it's startling and revealing and uncomfortable and um, dehumanizing and all the things that you can imagine about a process that I think in some ways is constructed by someone who was not a woman and not raped. The invasiveness of it. And so, and then you sort of follow the strain of the two detectives trying to figure out what's going on in this, in the rape case that they're investigating. And then you're also tracking the teenager to see how her life has changed by what happens to her. And so you toggle back and forth through time. So the teenager, the, the, the incident happens in 2008 and the, the, the detectives are in 2011. And so you've got this like parallel story that's happening. It's absolutely fantastic, absolutely riveting. Wholly recommend it. Um, lots of women have been talking about it on their Twitter feeds. And so I'm super interested in, um, I'm interested in men's perspective of it, actually, particularly that first hour. It's sort of very disturbing, but really compelling watching. And I, I'll say that aside from the intensity of the first hour, it then begins to kind of feel like a really, really good SVU episode. But highly recommend. It's called Unbelievable. And it is eight parts. And it's running on Netflix. And each part's about like, um, I'd say like 45 minutes or so. Cool. Really good watching. Cool. Jason? My recommendation is a book I recently finished, The Color of Water by James McBride. It came out quite a while ago, but I hadn't read it, and, and now I have. And it's uh, a memoir, basically. It's really interesting where it's about... Uh, James McBride is the son of a white Jewish mother, although she didn't reveal that she was a white Jewish mother while he was a child. And an African-American father, although his father died, I think, while his mother was still pregnant with him, and then she married another African-American man. And she was very secretive about her background growing up. And so this book is, it alternates his voice and her voice. So every other chapter is him talking about his childhood growing up, and then it's her talking about her childhood growing up. It's just phenomenal. And some of our listeners may have read it already. It, it got some acclaim. But I read it recently, and I, it is it is just phenomenal. Excellent. I am going to recommend soundtrack to an off-Broadway show called Strange Loop, which I saw a little while back. Strange Loop was written by Michael Jackson. That's the playwright's name. His You can follow him on Instagram at, I think it's The Living Michael Jackson, <laughs> as opposed to the other one. But um, the show is about a fat, black, queer male who is working on a musical while being an usher at The Lion King. And it is a lot of discussion about being fat, black, and queer, which is not a lot of what you see on stage. And some of it can be very much. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it. It can be a lot for the audience because they take on uh, homophobia and racism and fat phobia 
like head on, head on. And it was startling to watch, but it was a breath of fresh air. It was confusing in some parts, um, but it certainly had a point of view and it's not one that you often see. And so I've been listening to the soundtrack and revisiting the best parts of that. It's called Strange Loop. Check it out. It might be your thing. Um, it may not be your thing, but I, I enjoy it. So there he goes. And fun. yeah, it was, I don't know if it was fun. It was important. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes yeah. things are important. Yeah. Um, and it, that's, that's actually has, they have more weight and it's less important if it's good. It's important that this happened and that people saw it. So there that's it is. Good. That's the episode. Yeah. Do you, either of you like drive out to see like fall foliage? Is that a thing for you? It's not a thing for me, but I noticed that it's a thing for a lot of my white friends. I could make it a thing. I I wasn't going to put it like that, Misha. No, it's not a thing for me. There it is, America. No pumpkin spice lattes for for these three. (laughs) Although I've driven, I've done like one of those drives, um, like um, through Virginia, and it's very pretty. It's sure pretty. Like you see the leaves changing for in preparation for fall. It's fabu. Yeah, you know, it's just never been my thing. Like, I'm like, it just reminds me that soon, like, all the trees are dying and soon will be cold and miserable. Listen, everyone, join us next week for another outrageous dialogue with another fantastic person. And hey, maybe you're an interesting person. Maybe you're not. But if you are an interesting person and you want to chat with us, just let us know. We'd be happy to talk to you about whatever it is that you are excited about or an expert in. Anyway, yeah, don't don't waste our time if you're not interested. Oh God, no. Then we'll realize that you're not, and we'll have to waste all that time. Yes, please. <laughs> if you're not interesting, just please unsubscribe right now. And on that note, bye. 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 bye.